Hi and welcome to St Ninian's Sermons Podcast. My name's Stuart, I'm the Minister at St Ninian's in Stonehouse, which is in Scotland. We are a local ecumenical partnership between the Church of Scotland and the United Reformed Church and that means we reflect both traditions in our work and worship. So let's listen to our reading for this week and then get on to the sermon. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. To the church in Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worth it. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then to the church in Philadelphia, to the angels of the church, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the church in Laodicea, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here and I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is our second week in Revelation, and we hear today more of the letters, these seven letters to the churches. This one uh, we heard from the letter to Sardis and from Philadelphia um, and Laodicea. And it's the same format as the letters that we heard last year. Uh, last week, not last year. Um, it was only last week, wasn't it? Yeah, it was only last week. So, a quick refresher. These churches are the churches that grew up around the Gospel of John. Remember, that Gospel is different from the other three. It's a very, very different kind of writing. The people who are in these churches have mostly been Jews, and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And that was the main source of their teaching, was this fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And we know that later they were encouraged by letters. John wrote two letters, and they're in the New Testament as well, the first and second letters of John. And then this Revelation book, this strange book is from that same tradition. And we discovered last week that the style and imagery of the gospel and the letters are very much the same as they are in Revelation. It's just turned up to 11. And that's probably even more apparent this week. These letters to the three churches have lots of echoes of the gospel. I will come like a thief, and you'll not know the time or the hour that I'll come to you, as in John's gospel. You were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I stand at the door and knock. These are all phrases that we've heard before. And the churches would have heard them before. These people would be very familiar with this kind of language. Because it's, it's stuff that they hear all the time. From the gospel that they have, the gospel of John. So when they receive a letter saying these familiar things they know who it's from. They know that it's real. But imagine how they must have felt because these things are about them and not in a good way. And these letters aren't that private and confidential. They're not sent to just one church. They're sent to everybody. They're part of a larger document that is circulated around the seven churches. So the author criticizes the churches in public. Each of the seven churches gets in no uncertain terms a critique. I wonder if they did what we might do. I wonder if they compared each other. I wonder if they read through it and said, geez, oh, we're not as bad as them. I mean, ours is bad, but that church over there, what a state they're in. 
Because that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we do. We compare ourselves. And as long as we're not as bad as somebody else, then it must be okay. We're doing all right. Imagine being told that. And what we do is we indulge in a kind of denial. And we miss the point. All of us could do better. All of us could do better. In fact, all of us must do better. That's the point of these letters. These churches have already lost their way. They've already been caught up in building up the institution of the church instead of being communities of believers. They've already had the same arguments around who's in charge and done all the stuff that deflects our attention from what we should really be focusing on. It turns us away from Jesus. The context of this book of Revelation is the belief that any moment now Jesus could return. It could happen at any point. It could happen now. Or maybe next week or tomorrow or any time. And that's got huge implications, doesn't it? Jesus could come back right now. What if you're not prepared? What if you're not ready? There used to be a mug and a t-shirt and stuff that went around that said, look busy, Jesus is coming. But how long should you wait? How long would you wait? Say you were meeting somebody and they were late. How long would you wait? Kind of depends, doesn't it, on a number of factors. First and foremost, it probably depends on why you're waiting. If you're at the doctor's, for example, and you're unwell, then you'll wait because you're unwell and you want to wait to see the doctor. And sometimes there's emergencies and everybody understands that, and so you just wait. What if you were on a date or supposed to be on a date? wonder how long you would wait especially if it was a first date. Well, again, that probably depends on where you're waiting, doesn't it? If you're waiting at a bus stop in the rain, you might not wait as long as if you're sitting in a pub and you can have a drink and a chat to some folk and pass the time. What if you're sitting at a table in a restaurant? How awkward is that? You're on your own and you're waiting at somebody and the waiters keep coming and saying, do you want to ask? Do you want, do you want to order? Do you want a drink? Are you waiting for somebody? Do you want to order? Do you want to, you know, because that's what they do, isn't it? They need the table. They want to shift you. What if you were going to a show and you had tickets and the show was going to start? Go in. Yeah. Uh huh. Would you? Would you wait? Would you? you know, that's one of those things, isn't it? There comes a point, though, when you've waited long enough. And it's time to go. And the other person's not going to come. Now, this is a whole different experience now than it used to be because we have mobile phones. Right? And you can phone somebody and say, I'll be there in five minutes. It used to be that you just had to wait. And you just didn't know, did you? There was no way of getting in contact really with people to tell them that you were running a bit late or you'd missed your bus or that you just weren't coming. You changed your mind or something had happened. 
And the person was left there waiting and wondering. Perhaps there comes a point in our waiting when the pressures of the world seem to cloud into every thought. We've waited for Jesus and we've imagined what our life might look like and at some point that changes, doesn't it? Or we thought we were going to do something but it was risky. And at the beginning it seemed as though the risk was going to outweigh the dangers. But what if it doesn't? What if the longer it goes on, the more dangerous it gets, and then you start to re-evaluate everything that you thought before? And that's the problem that was facing the churches. It's a problem that still faces our church. 2,000 years ago, these churches were sitting around waiting on Jesus coming back. It had been 60 years since the crucifixion. 60 years since the resurrection, 60 years since Jesus disappeared in a cloud and promised that he would be back. That's a lifetime, especially in these days. The people who had met Jesus would be old. And most of the people in the churches had never met him, hadn't been around even when Jesus was around. They're second-hand believers or third-hand believers. And they lived through the tyrannical reign of Nero, the emperor, who scapegoated Christians and had them killed. Nero was really clever. He spread the cultural and political influence of Rome across the empire. He built theatres and arenas. He put on plays and athletic games and gladiatorial fights. Somebody else's teeth in today. And it was a hugely successful way of spreading the culture. And that culture began to overtake local culture and beliefs and practices. Everybody became the same. So it's no surprise, perhaps, that the believer's zeal had diminished. It's not really a shock that they're struggling how to work out what to do in the middle of this cultural revolution. Everything that they knew was under threat. Their vision of this new world where Jesus would come back and reign is under constant attack. They'd waited patiently. They'd done their best, but they had waited for a very, very long time. And eventually, well, eventually they get fed up. And they give up waiting. It's not that they'd stop believing in Jesus. It's, it, it just gets a bit less urgent. A bit less important. A bit less. And then another bit less and another bit less. And I'm sure that's something that most of us can relate to. When we first come to faith, it's exciting and it's overpowering and it can be a bit overwhelming. And we throw ourselves into it. We maybe join the church and go to the Bible study and go to the prayer group and we read our Bibles and, and we try to take in as much as we can and we're really enthusiastic about it and we pray often and we read our Bibles and do all of that sort of stuff. And our faith is by far the most important thing to us. But then after that first flush, we settle 
we settle for a bit less. And the other pressures and demands and interests of our lives need maintaining, so we step back and we step back into our lives and little by little, over time, it all slips away until we find ourselves here on a Sunday for an hour and perhaps not much else. I've been there. I'm sure most of you have been there at some point. It's not unusual. And that's exactly what the author of Revelation warns the seven churches against. And it's exactly what the author of Revelation warns us against 2,000 years later. You might remember that John's gospel is the one that shows the most concern for what happens next. What will become of the followers of Jesus once he has gone? It's in John's gospel that Jesus himself gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples. They're met in a room after the resurrection and he comes and stands among them and says peace and breathes the Holy Spirit onto them. It's a beautiful echo of Genesis 2 when God breathes life into the human that he's made out of dirt. Jesus literally inspires them, breathes life into them. But there's a problem with that. Only the people who were in the room got the Holy Spirit. Remember, Thomas wasn't there. And he's annoyed. (laughs) Because everybody else got it and he was out doing something else. He wasn't there when it happened. He didn't get the gift that Jesus gave to everybody else at the time that everybody else got it. And that leads us to a passage reminding us about the kinds of problems that the church will face. And it's exactly the same problem. Second-hand disciples. People who could never meet Jesus in the flesh. People who understandably have a very different and perhaps a more theoretical point of view about who Jesus was and is. They didn't get to put their hand in his side and touch the marks in his hand. But that's not actually our experience, is it? We have met Jesus. We have encountered the risen Christ. Because we meet him every time we encounter the wretched and the pitiable and the poor and the blind and the naked. Every time we gather around that table and we eat bread and we drink wine. We meet Jesus here in spirit. Those moments when we feel the closeness of God, the presence of Christ, the breath of the Holy Spirit. Just sometimes we forget. We get caught up in what has been. Those glorious moments of the past when Jesus seemed more real. When there seemed to be more believers. When it seemed as though maybe we didn't have to work quite as hard to convince other people of who Jesus was. Is it a surprise when we ourselves become less convinced? Is it a surprise when we start to forget? Is it a surprise that we ourselves buy into the story of decline and decay? Do we even knock at the door anymore? 
Never mind expect that it might be opened and that we might be invited in. It's time to wake up. It's time to stand up. It's time to find the embers of our faith and discover the fire that once burned within us. Jesus is with us at every moment. We just have to recognize the breath of God on our breath in every moment that we live, in every breath that we take. It's time to wake up. Because God still calls us to be his people. Our job is to share his love, to build his kingdom every moment of every day. Not just sometimes when we remember. It's time to light that fire again. It's time for us to be a beacon of hope in a world that needs hope more than it ever has. It's time to wake up because Jesus is coming. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments, questions or thoughts about this week's sermon, then please do get in touch. We create this podcast at anchor.fm where you can leave us a voice message. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We post the audio of the whole service each week on our website. There are details of all of this in the show notes. If you're in the neighbourhood and want to join us in person, we meet for worship every Sunday at 11am. We'd love to see you.